everyone. Happy Wednesday. <laughs> it's a bit ringy, huh? Is it echoey? Yeah, all right. We'll get that fixed. Um, I know they're, they're dealing with a whole new board back there, so it's a, whole, it's a learning curve. And so please bear with us as we, uh, as we make those adjustments. Um, so uh, we're, we're going to be in Deuteronomy this evening. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And um, just uh, looking forward to uh, what the Lord has for us, not only this evening, but uh, in the coming days. Um, some of the things that, um, you know, I was thinking uh, throughout the years as far as refuge is concerned, uh, that we've experienced as a family uh, has truly been uh, amazing, amazing in so many different ways. Um, as I've said it before, the blessing is seeing how God's people continue to grow and mature and then handle things in a way that blesses him and glorifies the Lord. And so this evening we continue in our study of uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And, um, and in this chapter, we're going to be taking a look at some uh, the ways in which unsolved murders are to be handled, um, the required process for marrying women who have been taken captive as men go out to war and, um, and the Lord hands over peoples to the Israelites. Um, also, we're going to take, be taking a look at the uh, rights of the firstborn and uh, really guarding their inheritance as the firstborn and why that was important. Um, we're going to talk about rebellious sons and the meaning of a man hanged on a tree. So those are the things that we're going to be covering in this chapter. So let's start out with a word of prayer and uh, get straight into our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once more for this evening, for this time that you've allowed us to gather together to worship you, Lord by fully surrendering our hearts to you. Lord, I pray that our desire would be to hear from you. That we, in the study of your word, Lord, would be you dipping your pen into our hearts, writing upon them that which you have for us as a blessing and would serve as nourishment to us. For man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And I pray, Father, that tonight we would get some good nourishment from your word. I pray, Lord, with that nourishment and strengthening of the man, Lord, that you would help us to walk strong, abiding in you. Lord, and being more understanding and aware of your truth in our lives, that we would reflect your glory to others. And so, Lord, we ask for your blessing, your anointing, Lord, uh, Pray, Lord, that you would just bless this time in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's first talk about this issue of an unsolved murder. In verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him. Unsolved murders. Uh, we're captivated by the TV shows, um, you know, forensics and murders and ways in which uh, the murder is brought to justice and uh, the different things in the background that led up to the murder and all of those things. We're, we're enthralled by these in some way. We're curious. We are 
kind of just captivated by those stories. Well, it would be nice if there was at some point no murder whatsoever. The only time that there was no murder involved in humanity was when it was just Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, because quickly thereafter, as they bore children, we know that Cain murdered Abel. And uh, so that was uh, the first family that experienced the first murder. And, um, you know, we know that Cain was uh, trying to uh, dodge the consequences of this murder. And it seemed like he had no remorse whatsoever. You know, so murder goes back <clears throat> to the very beginning, to the, to the point to where the first family was brought together. Murder is one of the most egregious crimes that one can commit toward another fellow human being. To take the life of another person is beyond comprehension. It, it truly is. I mean, I know sometimes we can be so angry toward someone else, but really if you think about it, to, to actually end the life of someone else is just beyond thought. It should be beyond thought. What we have before us are the instructions of God for His people on what to do, not if, but when they come upon a person who has been murdered and the murderer is unknown. They found him out, on, out in the field. Uh, it, the investigation has taken place and the, the murderer is just not known. This is what they were to do. This is how they were to handle this matter. This is implying that they know this person did not die of natural causes or some kind of an accident out in the open, but rather it is clear that this person had been murdered by another. And God's instructions on how to atone for the death of a person speaks of the fact that God requires atonement, the shedding of blood, because murder defiles the land and the people. And so that is the only way in which they could purify or cover the sin of that, that they were to that they would have in their midst. So the purging of the guilt of the innocent blood. Let's continue. Verse 2. Then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked, and that has not polluted or polluted, not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer, whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify in this manner. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from, the, from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of God the side of the Lord. So God regarded the following as doing what was right in his sight. There was a team of investigators that were put together. It was comprised of elders and judges that came out to the scene of the crime. They would investigate. They would measure the distance 
from the, the, the scene of the crime to the, to the uh, various cities that were around them. The one that was nearest to them uh, would then uh, be called upon to supply elders, um, and they were to be the ones that conducted the whole procedure of atoning for that of the blood that was shed, uh, the innocent blood that was shed. There was a description of the sacrifice, the location where the sacrifice was to be killed, the Levitical priesthood, the responsibilities of the elders of the city of jurisdiction. The sacrifice was an appropriate heifer, as, de as described here, one that had never been worked in any way, a heifer that was brought to the valley that had a stream running through it and was not plowed or had been sown seed in. In other words, the, the land wasn't worked. Uh, this heifer had never plowed a field. Um, it had never had a yoke placed over its neck in order to lead a plow through any field whatsoever. Just a pure, simple, young heifer. And there in the field, in this valley where water was running through and it had not been plowed nor uh, seed sown in it, the sacrifice would be killed by breaking its neck. The elders were the ones who were responsible for killing this heifer, this sacrifice. The Levitical priest would then come forward receiving and accepting this as a true sacrifice for the murder that had taken place to atone for it. And so we need to remember that the Levitical priesthood represented God to the people and the people to God. And so they would receive it, accepting that sacrifice. The Levitical priests were divinely assigned by God to be his representatives, and by them would all issues that were brought before them be dealt with and concluded with. And we see there how it is that we see the elders and we also see the Levitical priesthood. And we're reminded how it was that they were given authority over the people. And anything that, they, that was brought to them as far as issues were concerned, uh, they basically, once they concluded, they determined all um, the details of the issues. Um, they were the ones that um, concluded the issues. Now, that's just a brief, like a parenthetical statement within um, this whole commandment of how to deal with unsolved murders. Now, we know, moving on, the elders would symbolically wash their hands over the sacrifice and testify the words that we read. This was not some religious, empty reciting of words. This was actually testifying before the Lord of what they, the elders, had done. They should have completely, fully investigated the matter and with great confidence determined they've done everything they can and they have not found the murder. They, they've, done, they've done everything. They've, maybe they've interviewed people. They've figured out some of the background, you know, who they've been, um, you know, talking to, any issues with anyone. You know, all of those things have been exhausted. And so now they're testifying before the Lord, hey, we've done everything. We've exhausted every avenue, gone down every road, every lead we've, we've tested out, and we've found we, 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 we can't find the murder. They were testifying that they had done all they could to find out what exactly took place 
And if there was any way of finding out who murdered this person, but if they had not done everything they could, then this was just as empty as when Pilate washed his hands in the trial of Jesus. Same. It didn't mean a thing. We know that Pilate succumbed to the wishes of the people, feared Rome, but also the people, his constituents, you could say. And these people, if they had not sincerely, genuinely done everything that they could have done to find the murder, then they too, as they washed their hands symbolically and testified before the Lord, was all empty. Now, having the authority and responsibility brings this people, this group of people, a power they were to treat with utmost respect and dignity and understand that they were to serve the people and everything possible and do everything possible to resolve the issue and find the murderer. And only at that point were they to ceremoniously wash their hands over the sacrificed heifer and testify before the Lord that they had done everything they could. And really, this was a cry to the Lord. This was a, um, a, a testimony, but it, it was also a prayer on behalf of the people to accept the atonement for them on their behalf, whom, as they had professed and confessed, that God had redeemed, the very people that they were crying out for. This was the right thing to do before the Lord, is what he said. A very formal process that held people accountable to do everything they could to bring to justice basically this awful situation. Even if they didn't find the person, it was still required that blood was shed for the remission of sin, for the forgiveness of sin. You see, God desires mercy. And so that's what we see here even in this first portion of this chapter. What we have before us is substitutionary atonement. It looks forward to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for all people. The remission of sin by the shedding of blood. It is only with this that God would take away the sin of the people and, and its guilt that comes with sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In verse 9 it says, So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And this is what is right in the sight of the Lord. Now in verses 10 through 14, we deal with how to handle female captives. Verse 10 says, When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive... And you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants." But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. How to marry female captives. They go to war. I know it, sounds, it does sound funny, right? How to, how to marry female captives, you know, take them. Um, go to war. 
Find a woman in the midst of the civilians of the people you have conquered, and this is the manner in which a, a soldier is, to, is able to take one of these women um, as a wife. Uh, if one of the men were to find one of these women attractive to them and wish to take them as a wife, then them and the woman were to take part in certain things in order for this to be right before the Lord. So it wasn't just, okay, uh, you woman, me man, you come, me, <laughs> we go. You know, it, it wasn't, it was, the, the Lord set this before his people to make sure that this was right before him. Before consummating the marriage, even though he brings her to his home, the man brings this woman to his home. She is to shave her hair off and trim her nails completely short, change the clothes that she was wearing, and be allowed to mourn or lament for her parents for one whole month. I said before consummating the marriage, just bringing her to the home. The man desires to marry this woman. This is exactly what the Lord had instructed his people needs to take place. Shave her head, trim her nails, change her clothes, allow her to mourn for one month. Observe, tend to, care for, do not touch. We need to also understand that it was not uncommon in that day for a woman to be taken unto the, the man, the soldier, that was part of the enemy as a wife. But it was the manner in which they were taken that was important to God, or else he wouldn't have given these instructions. And that is why he gave these specific guidelines. The shaving of her head and the trimming of her nails, the doing away with her old clothes and putting on new clothes was demonstrating a willingness to submit in humility with a symbolic gesture of purifying herself from her past and starting anew with her husband-to-be. It was her willingness to, to do that. She could have very well, very well, uh, pulled back, uh, completely refused to do anything, any instructions that she was given, and, um, and things probably wouldn't have, would, would have not gone so well for her. She would have been taken as a captive and made to serve. Nonetheless, um, she had that option. But at this point, God said, there are two options. Two options. After she had been allowed to mourn her father and mother for one whole month, she had been allowed to deal with the pain of losing that which she held most precious up to this point in order to hold on to that which was before her. There were only two options at this point. Either consummate the marriage and be married to her or let her go wherever she desires. At this point, she had demonstrated a commitment by doing the things required of her. She had shaved her head, trimmed her nails. This was very humiliating for a woman to do. She had changed her clothes. She had gone through the process of putting off the old and putting on the new. And therefore, at that point, if he, after one whole month, and she had really communicated, demonstrated a commitment by doing these things, he no longer wanted her, then she was to be set free, and she could go wherever she desired. She does not belong to him in any way, shape, or form. 
This was the manner in which God protected the right of captive women. Not to be mistreated and held as a possession and abused. God did not make any allowance for this. Not at that point and not at any point. And so we see this. Even, even then, as I, as I consider these things, as I was going through and considering these things, I thought, my God, you, I mean, your wisdom is unsearchable. It's absolutely amazing. Because he knew that as he sent his people into the promised land, they were going to be having these conflicts. These things were going to be coming up, and he anticipated it all perfectly. Amazing. And this is how you are to handle these things. Inheritance rights. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the, for, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. The right of the firstborn son is to receive a double portion. So, depending on how many children they had together, um, let's say there were nine children. Just say. Right? Well, you counted nine plus one, that's ten, ten portions, because the firstborn is to receive a double portion. So, two times that of anyone else. But things can get complicated if a man has two wives, no? I think so. Let alone if he favors one over the other and they begin to have children. There's no doubt some kind of conflict that's going to take place. God makes sure that his law concerning the inheritance of the firstborn son is not taken lightly in any set of circumstances. And make sure they understand that what they foul up doesn't change what God has commanded. Keep that in mind. What we have fouled up does not change what God has commanded. What we have fouled up does not change what God has commanded. I think that's really important for us to like really comprehend, grasp, and live out in our lives and, and really surrender to. You know, sometimes we, we just foul things up and then we justify our following consequence or following actions because of that. No, no, no. God's commands, His word does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we need to just receive that. God is not saying that having multiple wives is okay either. He ordained from the very beginning that marriage was to be between one man, male, and one woman, female. As they were born. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He didn't go on to say and talk about 
several wives, multiple wives. He didn't go on to say that. It's between marriages between one man and one woman. But just as God knew that it was by the hardness of man's heart that he was going to insist on divorce and therefore made sure that it was done in a way that the man took full responsibility for the separation and the Apostle Paul gave the details of the circumstances that would allow for it, even though God hates divorce. Let me just say this, that it's amazing what God can do even with a broken and dead marriage. You know, sometimes it's out of the hardness of our hearts that we get to a place, you know, as my wife and I have discussed, you know, it, it's pretty hard, um, and it truly is, when a woman, when, when sometimes a man gets a woman to the point to where her heart is completely hardened. You know, we, we've neglected them enough, we've... we've uh, you know, poured into so many other things that we just don't nourish our own marriages. And, and, and the woman, you know, at, at first, you know, she's, she's there and she is, is going after and pursuing. And at some point, sometimes, and maybe you guys know of people like this, to where the woman at some point just, it's gone. That's it. It's pretty hard, but it's not impossible. A man that seems to have gone too far, um, it's never too late to come back. It's never too late to allow God to turn things around. God desires, God, God hates divorce. And that is the truth. It's in God's word. God hates divorce. But because of the hardness of our hearts, he said, these, these are the only ways. And the Apostle Paul laid them all out. This is the only way in which you can separate. But it's because of the, the hardness of our hearts. It's not because we surrender to the Lord. I believe any, any husband and wife, any, any two man and woman that comes together in marriage, if you do it God's way, it could be a success in glorifying to the Lord. I truly believe that. So God, just as he, you know, man insisted on divorce and because of the hardness of of their hearts, um, God knew that this was going to be the case. He said, okay, you can give a certificate of divorce, but the Apostle Paul gives the details on, on why it was or how it was or the only ways in which one could do that. And the Apostle Paul gave the detail, or um, so God made sure that in the case of polygamy, that the firstborn son was not neglected his due inheritance because of the error of his father. God in his perfect knowledge anticipates all things, for he sees all things and knows all things. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. That's, that's why I say, as we, as we look at God's word, as we consider what we have before us, remember, these people, the Israelites, were not in the promised land yet. I mean, our hindsight, I mean, we can look back and we're like, oh yeah, and so they, they had this before them. But they had this before they even went into the land. 
give them perfect instructions. This is how you can successfully and in a very blessed way inhabit the land that I am giving to you. Bless me, honor me, and you will be better off or you will be blessed. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Well, he also knew that there were going to be rebellious children. I'm sure you've never dealt with a rebellious child. If you have children, <laughs> maybe you have it, I don't know. <laughs> but that's what we have here. But this, this is like, this is way over the top. This is not just like your everyday rebellion, kind of testing the waters, but this is way beyond. Um, verse, verses 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. You shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Wow, right? This is how to deal with a son who is just completely out of control, aggressively and personally hostile toward his parents, bringing shame and dishonor to them by not only his words, but also his actions. Not only in the home, but outside the home. It's known inside the home, but it's also known outside the home. By the way, this is not a, a little child. Uh, this is not a tween. This is a son who is a full understanding uh, and comprehends what he's doing. This, is also, th this, this whole situation also does not relieve the parents of their responsibilities to parent the child in the way that they should. It, it does not justify them neglecting that and then just saying, well, he's rebellious. He doesn't listen. Uh, he's way beyond. He, he shames us. He dishonors us. And at this point, he's, he's drinking. He's a drunkard. He's just, he's just out of control. No, no, no. They are fully responsible and will be held accountable for stewarding, as parents, the life of that child. Please notice that, yes, the son is stubborn and rebellious and refuses to obey both his father and mother, but the parents were to have not neglected to discipline him in the process. Uh, to discipline is to correct. Um, you know, and, and I think I've said this before, um, my word of preference is not punishment. It's, it's discipline. Let's discipline our children. But to punish is more like, a, you know, let's, hey, let's cuff them up and, Throw, throw them off in the, the corner. No, no, no. What, what, what they need is discipline. Because discipline is correction. It's teaching in the way of righteousness. It's making sure to correct them from the wrong action to the right action. For them to fully be understand and be aware of and how 
to do that. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. I have seen too many parents and too many sores with kids that are completely out of control. I mean, out of control. I mean, I, I just, it, it, you know, you want to go over there and go, hey, <laughs> here's the belt, mom, dad. Can you, the restroom's right back there. I'm sure they have the key. You know, um, it, it's amazing how God wired us. It's amazing how there's these, um, these nerves of understanding that are connected from these right here all the way to here. All of a sudden, it's like, I got it. <laughs> you get one, one spank, and it's like, okay. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Those are strong words, but those are biblical words. If, if, if children get to the point to where, you know what, I've done everything I can. I've done everything I can. And, and I hate to do this. But I need to apply a little pressure to that rear end. And if you fail to do that and allow him to continue on, well then there's something else. That means you spoil the child. That means you, you, his heart, her heart, gets to the point to where they have no idea how to deal with authority. And when they don't have any clue, they don't have any, any instruction in dealing with authority, guess what they do when they grow up? They have no idea how to deal with authority. And they give everyone a hard time. So whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Early. Early. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Also, I, I want to I turn, because I was just thinking about how, was, how, how do you train up a child? How do, you, how do you discipline him correctly? Because discipline isn't, isn't just the, the, the negative side of it, but it's this also. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So with this, this is, this is how you teach your children to do this very thing. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is how. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, whether you're coming or going, sitting at your home, you're out and about, you always have them before you. You always have them in your heart. You yourself are walking this out in your own life. And you are an example to your children. And you are constantly teaching this to your children. This is how you provide discipline to your children in the positive way. 
you are training them up, just as it says in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. If, after having done all that they could possibly do, the son is still stubborn, rebellious, not obeying his parents and refuses to listen to them, then they were to bring him before the elders of the city at the gate. Uh, that's very public. And they were to testify of his rebellion, of which they probably already knew. If he was truly a drunkard and a glutton, then basically he partook of everything out there that he wasn't supposed to, and, and they knew that. This is regarding, they regarded as an evil within the midst of the people, and the son was to be stoned to death by the men of Israel, therefore purging the evil from their midst. The parents could not take matters into their own hands. This is what we see here. They, they couldn't take matters into their own, hand, their own hands. They had to bring their son before these judges who were impartial. Because we can be very emotional as, we, as we're dealing with our children, right? Especially at that point. I've done everything I could. He's hostile, aggressive toward us. It's amazing what he does in the home, and you see him out and about, and they were to bring them, bring him before these impartial judges. But what I want you to understand is that it was common practice for the Greeks and the Romans to have absolute rights over the lives of their children. So take that into account as we take a look at this text and these instructions and commands for the Israelites, God's people. They had absolute rights over the lives of their children. These Romans and these Greeks did. And God, again, not only held the parents accountable for bringing up their children right, but also made sure they did not abuse their children, their stewardship of their children, the children themselves. This act of rebellion was not just a dishonor to the family, the parents, the the mom and dad, but also the whole community. And the law was to protect basically the social order of Israel. I've covered this before, how it is that there is no way a society can endure the rebellion of the young against the old. We cannot ever encourage that. We need to encourage respect and honor and to really nurture that relationship between the young and the old. Because if we destroy the foundation upon which society is built on, then it comes crumbling down, it comes tumbling down. And the people are given to their own vices, and they lack wisdom, their own ways, and the, they depart from that which has been foundational. Now, this whole thing, would you say that it would strike fear in the people once they hear it? Absolutely, right? There's no question about it, and it would definitely strike fear in the hearts of every person that heard that this took place. It would deter some from ever testing the waters of rebellion, and instead practice humility and honoring their parents. Even if, if, if at first it was like, oh no, <laughs> I know what happened to so-and-so, um, Mom, I, I love you. Dad, I love you. You know, when you hear of other kids being, or siblings, siblings getting disciplined, 
They're like, ah, I don't want to go down that road. And it's funny how the siblings come, come up to mom and dad afterward, and they're so loving. They, so they cuddle up, and I love you. What do you need, you know? <laughs> that just goes to show that this works, and it does work. It really does. Now, we also need to note that there is, even, even though this is a command by the Lord, this is the law. There is no evidence that this was actually ever put into practice. It could have been. But maybe the law itself served as enough of a detractor from fully acting out this rebellion. Because this, this is over the top. This is not, again, this is not just your common kind of testing, rebelling, you know, pushing back kind of a thing. And then it's not that. It's way beyond. I was thinking about this, though. And even, even before I came up, I was, I was thinking how it'd be, it'd be so hard to get to this point. To get to the point to where you yourself as a parent are thinking, you're, you're gone. You're, you're gone. I, I have to take you to the elders of the city. I just couldn't imagine that. But that's exactly what our Father in Heaven did with His Son. For us, we were too far gone. There had to be a sacrifice in our place. The heart of a Father who loved us enough to demonstrate His love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, can you imagine if this law was active today in our society? Number one, how many parents would be guilty of failing on their part? Number two, how many sons would be guilty of living a truly over-the-top rebellious life toward their parents? Not listening to a word their parents tell them. In complete rebellion, aggressive, hostile. Let's uh, wrap up with the last couple of verses here. Verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The curse of the tree. Um, what was worse than being put to death in ancient Israel? Being hung on a tree. Being hung on a tree, exposed to humili humiliation, shame before everyone, uh, to have your body exposed to the elements and to uh, those scavenger birds that would come and pick at you, and it would be a disgrace on full display. And God, even with this, commanded that a person, even though they had committed a crime punishable by death, and he was put to death, and then further being disgraced by being hung up on a tree. This doesn't mean that you're, you're hung, like with a noose. It means that you're, you're, you could be propped up on a tree, on wood, and just on display for all, just a disgrace. But even with this, God commanded that a person who is hanged from a tree is to be brought down before nightfall and buried that very same day. 
there is to be no excessive judgment, unnecessary judgment. And there was mercy that was to be exercised even toward the family in bringing that person down. Considering the family, that is a disgrace already. That's shame. As you see someone hanging up there and they were to be brought down before nightfall, they were to be brought down and buried that very same day. But they were considered accursed. It was such an awful disgrace, display of disgrace, that they were considered accursed by God. You see, the people were to be careful to not themselves defile the land that the Lord was giving them by going above and beyond what was necessary. Doing something that, it, this is just absolutely unnecessary. It's, it, this, is, it, this, this crime is, it doesn't call for that. Judgment, yes. Maybe disgrace for a moment as far as, because it was just so over the top, this was just amazing, but that's it. It's over. Done. Bring him down. Bury him that same day. But Jesus was the one who was left hanging on a tree, whose blood was the innocent blood that was shed for the remission of our sin. He was the accursed by man and God and upon whom our sins were laid, and yet he was blameless. He was blameless in all his ways. Galatians three thirteen and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And if we no longer have to fear God's judgment, which in Christ we do not. We don't have to fear judgment. That's why we can walk in confidence in the Lord. Uh, come on, what may, you know, you know, one of the songs that you sung, Mandy, um, you know, it just really lays it out, the one that was written in, what, 1944? Yeah. It's just, hey, listen, when you consider how wretched we are, that we ourselves, the more you draw near to the glory of the word of God, and you understand his wisdom and his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion, and just how perfect and holy and righteous he is, as you start reflecting on your own life and just daily living, you come to the realization that I have fallen and fall and continue to fall way short of God's perfect standard. And we consider... God's love toward us that much more. But at the same time, we walk in confidence, knowing that we no longer have to fear God's judgment in Christ. That has been dealt with, taken care of on the cross at Calvary. We no longer have to, have to we don't have to deal with that at all. Therefore, we no longer have to fear it. At this point, the fear of the Lord is this deep fear of being irreverent toward him, of, of letting him down. Yes, we could be disciplined because God disciplines those whom he loves, but at the same time, and we don't have to fear God's judgment because we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we can freely receive his blessings because of his demonstrated love and grace through the sacrifice of his son on our behalf. 
In other words, his promises are true for us. We should walk in his promises. We should be encouraged and built up in his promises and be strengthened in the inner man by his spirit and by his word. And so we have chapter 21 closing with this foreshadowing of Christ, our Redeemer, who did hang on the tree for us and demonstrated his love. And I pray that, that through the understanding, through the, the, um, really the study of his word, that we continue to draw closer to the Lord because we catch just a deeper glimpse, glimpse of his love toward us. And we respond in an appropriate manner by offering ourselves once again as living sacrifices. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the sacrifice of your Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but your word tells us have eternal life. Thank you, Lord. We walk in confidence in you. Help us to walk holy and righteous before a holy and righteous God. Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, set us on the right path that we may bless and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.